Hello and welcome to the British Food History Podcast. My name is Neil Butchery. Today, I am talking to journalist and author Sejil Sukadwala about her new book, The Philosophy of Curry, published by the British Library. The Philosophy of Curry looks at, well, the history of Indian food in Britain, as well as the influences Britain has had on Indian cuisine in India, and how the two have affected each other over time. It looks at the reasons why some people reject the term curry, as well as the reasons that others do not. It covers a lot of history, and I must say, it's very good indeed. Before we start though, contact details. If you've got any questions, or queries, or discussion points about this episode, or any episode that has been so far, please contact me. In fact, get in contact with me if you've got any questions about anything to do with food history and Britain. The reason I say there is going to be a post-bag episode at the end of the season. So, if you do have something for me, email neil at britishfoodhistory.com or contact me on Twitter at Neil Buttery or Instagram at doctor, that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery. I'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. Oh, actually, one last thing. Please also review, like and subscribe and tell folk about the podcast. A humongous thank you to everybody who has already done that. Okay, here we go. I chatted to the Sejil earlier this month, September 2022. Some of the things we talked about were why the idea of the curry is for some a controversial one, the way Indian food changed with colonialism, and what it was like before then, when and how curries and curry houses came to Britain, the problems Indians had selling food in their restaurants to a sometimes racist clientele, and how, or perhaps I should say why, they kept their composure. We also talked about modern Indian food in Britain. I'll be back at the end of the episode to let you know about this week's Easter eggs for subscribers, as well as details of how to become a subscriber or supporter of the blogs and podcast, etc. Okay, here we go. Well done on your fantastic book, The Philosophy of Curry. Sajal, welcome to the British Food History Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed the book, and it seems to be going down a, a storm with everybody that's that's read it. Thank you. Let's just talk about the the title for a second, because I guess everything in the book hinges on the title, and that's a maybe unexpected word in there, and that's philosophy. Yeah. Why why curry should have a a philosophy should be straightforward, surely. <laughs> what um well, what inspired you to write a book where I suppose the concept of a curry can be questioned and and analysed? Uh, the book wasn't my idea. It's mm. um. It's not a topic I'd given much thought to. And I mean, beyond the fact that curries are delicious, obviously, but I hadn't really thought about the history or the politics of curry. It was a book proposal which came completely out of the blue from the British Library at the, at the beginning of 2001. It was beginning of January. And I was about to pitch some story ideas to editors for articles because um, I write, write articles about food, food and restaurants. And mm-hmm. um, I was not actually intending to write a book at all uh, because I'm already writing one book. I'm writing, um, I'm working on a dictionary of Indian food, which is mm. something I've been working on for more than four years. So oh, really? I didn't re- oh, fantastic. Yeah, and it's kind of turning more into an encyclopedia because uh, the cuisine is really complex. 
but I wasn't going to start writing another book in the middle of, you know, writing one book. But it's just something mm-hmm. which came from British Library. And at first I thought it was some kind of spam email. <laughs> um, and uh, I had to double check just to make sure. And it was, um, it seemed legit. So I replied and uh, initially they were just going to give me three months to to do the book. So I said no. Um, and then they came back to me like a few days later and said, you know, if they give me six months, could I do the book? And even six months wasn't really long enough. But British Library is such a um, prestigious organization that mm. I couldn't really say no. And no, um, my my initial re- reaction was um, they're stereotyping me, you know, just because I'm Indian, they're asking me to write about curry. But actually a better way of, or more accurate way of looking at it is um, they, were, they wanted someone to write about curry as part of the philosophy series. And Philosophies is a misleading, somewhat misleading title because it's actually a series of single subject books on Mm. history of, for instance, tea, coffee, cheese, wine, beer, gin and whiskey. Mm. Uh, Mm -hmm. These are the food and drink titles and there are more coming up. So they were looking for someone to write about curry and it's really good. To their credit, they chose an Indian. They, They actually made an effort to look for an Indian writer. So I was really flattered when I realized that. I was mm. uh, very flattered to be asked. Oh, you must have, been, uh, must have been a pang of nervousness when you were kind of saying yes to it. I'm just putting yeah. myself in your position. I'd have been really nervous. Yeah, because it's a huge <laughs> topic and it's really controversial as well. So, yeah, mm. it's a huge responsibility. But I really love the title. I mean, the title is really cool. I mean, you know, when in your life are you going to get a chance to write a book called The Philosophy of Curry? <laughs> it's such a unique <laughs> title. Well, you kind of kick off with the, in the introduction of the book, if I'm right in remembering, kind of saying that, well, do you know what curry is? Depending on your point of view or who you are, the whole idea of a curry might not even be a real one. I guess that's why it's, it's philosophical. Um, I reckon most British people would say, we know what curry is. I reckon most people living in India will probably be rolling their eyes at (laughs) what um, maybe British people uh, think of uh, as a curry and maybe think of um, when they think of Indian food. This argument that curry doesn't exist, which is actually coming from diaspora Indians, Indians who live abroad. Um, Mm -hmm. Indians in India many Indians do actually use the word. So, yeah, uh, it's just that Indian restaurant menus are not categorized in the same way as Indian restaurant menus here. Like you don't have a section on curry. Uh, You might have Mm. dal, vegetable dishes, meat dishes and so on. But you don't have like, um, and you don't have same categories of curries like korma, madras, vindaloo. So these are, you know, British, well, Bangladeshi adaptations of British curry, uh, Anglo-Indian curries. So Mm -hmm. there there isn't the same understanding of curries in India as, as, as here. So yeah, there is a difference in understanding. Mm. I, I would just say that so many Indian people, especially the ones living abroad, they, they reject the term. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that. Firstly, they weren't really brought up using the word curry. Now, it depends on where 
in India your parents are from? Because lots of Goans, for instance, they, they eat fish curry every day for lunch and they call it fish curry. There are lots of dishes in India which are called curry, but then there are other people who use individual names for the dishes, like um, a curry might be sabzi or it might be shark or it might be salan or thoran. You know, there are all these different names and you'd use mm. individual names for the for the dishes depending on which part of India you're from and the kind of community and family uh, you grew up in. And some Indians did actually grow up using the word curry. So there isn't, you can't really make a generalization, but because so many Indian people didn't use the word curry, they, they just reject the term outright. Uh, some actually confuse it with the word kadi. Now, kadi is a chickpea flour-based broth, and often it includes yogurt, and sometimes it includes pakoras as well. And there are all these different different regional variations, like sometimes it contains vegetables, and you, use it with, you mm. eat it with rice, or you eat it with kichri, which is rice and lentils cooked together, and that's called kadi. So lots, lots of Indian people grew up thinking curry is a British pronunciation of the word kadi. Then there are other people who are other Indians who reject the term curry because they think it's reducing a really complex cuisine to a single yeah. umbrella term, which was created by the British. Their argument is that the cuisine is really complex. There's more to Indian food than curry. There are, you know, fritters, there are savory porridges, there's street food, there are pancakes, there are rice dishes. You know, there are all kinds of different things. And why are you just picking on one category and reducing an entire very complex, regional, hyper-regional cuisine into one single term. So that's what they're angry about. Then there are other Indians who experienced racism when they were growing up. So when they were in school, they were bullied by white children who mm-hmm. teased them for smelling of curry. So you'd go to school and they would say something like, um, you smell of curry, did you have curry for breakfast? And if they said something like, no, I had cornflakes, they would say, oh, did your cornflakes have curry powder? You know, just things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just, you know, very unpleasant to experience that. So you get really sort of self-conscious of the smell of curry. Mm. You take these things to adulthood, don't you? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Then there are other Indian people who are, I mean, they're very, they're, there's a kind of snobbery towards Bangladeshi curry houses, inverted commas, because uh, lots of Indian people would say something like, these old school curry houses don't represent Indian home cooking. So um, they want to distance themselves from that kind of restaurant cooking which uses lots of shortcuts like boiled onion paste instead of sauteing a curry for like 15 minutes mm. like you should do. It would be time, too time-consuming to do that. Uh, or they, they use ready, ready-made spice blends or ready-made curry sauces. So they just, you know, lots of Indian people just want to distance themselves from that kind of um, food which is full of ghee and oil and food colouring. So there's, there's mm. a bit of snobbery and a bit of, I would say, some kind of racism as well involved in that that's racism towards Bangladeshi, Bangladeshis but on the other hand sure. there is uh, there are younger Indians diaspora Indians who grew up with that kind of cooking and they really appreciate it they really you know they they, they argue that Bangladeshi restaurant cooking should be considered to be a separate genre of cooking you shouldn't compare it to Indian home cooking mm. so yeah I was wondering about that is it just two different things like I don't know, traditional English and, and French cookery, it's just two things. It's not that one's good and one's bad, it's just two things. Yeah, two separate <laughs> things. Yeah, exactly. That's mm. what lots of um lots of people argue. And even people who like so called, you know, authentic, I mean, 
again, I'm putting that word in inverted commas because I, I don't believe there is such a thing as authenticity. <laughs> um, but those who maybe traditionally is a better word. So even those Indians who grew up eating traditional Indian food, they also enjoy Bangladeshi restaurant cooking as well. So they, they appreciate it in its own right. So it's not that all Indians reject it, but there are people who, especially older generation, who just want to distance themselves from kind of early curry house cooking. But the main reason for not liking the term is its association with colonialism. And that's why mm-hmm. lots of Indian people, especially younger Indians, increasingly reject the term. Also, there's lots of misunderstanding around it because they think it's it was um, there was a, a colonizer called Mr. Curry, and curry as a category is named after him because he really loved curries. Um, hmm. So that's um, that's wrong. That's incorrect. But because of its association with uh, colonialism, lots of people find it really problematic to use that term. Even if it's not correct. It was one of the things where it doesn't seem that far-fetched that that might have happened, yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. So I can understand why people would uh, maybe hear that and just take that as, as truth, because it's, yeah, it's certainly not a far-fetched thing. Yeah. Let's have a little look at maybe the history of, well, I guess how we've reached a, a, a modern Anglo-Indian cuisine. Yeah. And actually, before that, can I just say, well done, because you managed to pack a huge amount of history in quite a few pages. Mm. It's it's very dense, yeah. but it's certainly not a whistle-stop tour. You really feel, feel like you're having your hand held <laughs> around all those centuries of um, changes within within India and from uh, mm. influences from outside and then India influencing the rest of the world. Yeah. It's really well written. So oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Well yeah. done. I, I had to write uh, in a very kind of brisk writing style. So I didn't have a lot of space to, you know, like build up a picture or something or discuss a point. I mean, every sentence could have been a paragraph and every paragraph could have been a chapter in its own right. So there is lots of information. There's a lot I had to leave out. There is a lot more to say, but it's a short book and it's introductory. And I think, yeah, I've covered quite a lot. (laughs) I was quite pleased about that. But I think it's left some people wanting more, which I think is a good thing. Definitely a good thing. <laughs> Can we go back? Well, I suppose we need to go back maybe to uh, an India before colonialism, I suppose, if we're maybe thinking about the link between India and, and Britain. So before colonialism, mm-hmm. what was Indian food like? I mean, it's always been a fulcrum of trade, hasn't That's it? Because, right. you know, ge- geographically, the way it pokes out into the mm-hmm. ocean, it's obviously going to be a, 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 a place of trade. But yeah, what, what was... Indian food tradition like before the Europeans stuck the stupid noses in? (laughs) Yeah, um, well, India's always had um, travellers and invaders. So the earliest travellers were Greek and Chinese and uh, Turks, and they brought their influences. And the Mughals invaded India in the 16th century. So they invaded North India. So they, so they brought influences from Persia. So Indian food had been influenced by travellers and conquerors for a long time before the British arrived. Um, so it's actually kind of difficult to you know uh, pin down exactly what it was like before travellers and conquerors arrived. Mm. In terms of um, vegetables, there are lots of gourds and squashes and pumpkins and aubergines lemons, bananas, mangoes, you know, that, that sort of thing. Uh, they were growing mm-hmm. in India. The spices included coriander and ginger and holy basil. So there was there were lots of spices native to India. 
then later on came cinnamon and cloves and so on. But uh, lots of spices existed already. Th- there was lots of coconut. There were dairy dairy products like ghee and butter and milk, uh, which were used in abundance. I know this because mm-hmm. I read a lot of uh, Indian folk tales. And the ingredients or the food products that keep coming up in ancient Indian folk tales are dairy products and black pepper and mangoes. Hmm. So you get these three coming up over and over again. Then lots of Indian mitai, which is still around, uh, they have their roots in ancient India. You know, they've hardly changed over the years. There were obviously, you know, there were no chilies or tomatoes or potatoes. It seems to me unimaginable that um, there was at one point no tomatoes and no yeah, chilies. Because we associate Indian <laughs> food so much with chilies and tomatoes that, yeah, it's, it's impossible to imagine. Chilies were introduced to India in the 16th century by the Portuguese and tomatoes and potatoes arrived in the 18th century and they came either... They either were introduced by the Portuguese or by, by the British. So they came later mm. and they weren't embraced by the by Indians straight away. It took a while for Indian people to start incorporating incorporating them in their in their diets. So yeah, it now it's really hard to imagine Indian food without these ingredients. But I would say uh, before tomatoes, there were different souring agents being used, such as tamarind ah. uh, and lemons. Of course. And fresh green mangoes, as well as dried green mangoes and dried green mango powder. Then pomegranates, which came from Persia around, you know, between 16th and 18th centuries. So pomegranate juice and dried pomegranate powder. Then vinegar came with the Portuguese. It was used in Goan cookery mainly. I guess the vin, it's the vin is it the vin in Vindaloo? Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. The vinegar yeah, that's in right. Vindaloo? Uh, yeah. it was, uh, initially, it was used for preserving pork with garlic and that's the origin of vindaloo mm. all right alu is, is garlic yeah, isn't yeah, it that's right that, that penny has only just yeah. dropped just now with that one <laughs> yeah yeah that's right um so yeah so there were all these different souring agents which were being used and then bengali started using tomatoes in the sweet and sour curries and then the tomatoes traveled probably via the grand trunk road to the north of india where it became really popular and it's used it's widely used in north indian curries now and potatoes before potatoes there were lots of tubers used like yams and colocasia roots but potatoes came late with the uh, with the british and i think the portuguese and the british and they probably got them from the dutch as for the chilies uh, before the arrival of chilies, there was lots of black pepper being used along with long pepper mm-hmm. and something called Java pepper or Cuban mm. pepper and ginger and mustard. And these were combined to create heat in dishes. And then chilies came along and they looked like, uh, look, the pods looked a bit like long pepper pods. So uh, South Indians who used long pepper quite a lot in the cooking they were really enthusiastic about chilies. So they started using chilies first and then the chilies traveled to north of India and then the rest of India. So, yeah, I think it's hard to imagine what the food was like. But it's um, but on the other hand, um, I think lots of temple cooking and lots of fasting foods in India, the dishes are made without many of these ingredients, without these Colombian exchange in- ingredients. Colombian exchange was uh, ingredients which came to India via... Mexico, Peru, Lisbon, 
Africa and other places, um, and they, they would then go back to other continents and other countries as well. So that was the that was called the Colombian Exchange. It's amazing, isn't it, that people think um, globalization is a mm. modern thing? I mean, that's true globalization that you've been yeah. talking about there. So from a, from a point of our of our story, we have the English coming to India first as colonizers. So I was just wondering, uh, you know, how, how well did they assimilate? Not the right word because they don't. They didn't try to assimilate. But um, well, well, with regard to uh, Indian cuisine, you know, were there certain things that they avoided? Certain things that they really enjoyed, or did they just try and remain very British and carry on eating British food? The first wave of British in India were East India Company workers, um, salarymen, and. They they tried to fit in as much as possible, and they ate what locals ate. They ate Indian food, and but in, they ate huge amounts of meat. I mean, Hindu vegetarian food wasn't really to their taste. They liked Muslim curries and Goan and Parsi curries because they were made with lots of meat. I'm not saying Hindu Hindu cuisine was all vegetarian because Hindus ate a lot of meat as well in those days. Um, and actually, they still do. Um, I think there's a there's a myth that Indian food is veg- you know primarily vegetarian, or Hindus eat primarily mm. vegetarian food. Hindus avoided beef because of uh, yeah of because course. of cow worship, yes. and Muslims mm. avoided mm-hmm. pork. In Goan cuisine and in Parsi cuisine, you know there were no uh, taboos or restrictions. So the the early British settlers in India, they really enjoyed Goan food and uh, Parsi food and actually Muslim meat, meat curries as well. They ate large quantities of meat and that's where lots of these British Indian curries come from, you know, Koma and Vindaloo and Madras. Madras is actually a made-up dish, but railway lamb curry, you know, all these things are adaptations of like Muslim and Goan and Parsi curries. And yeah, I mean, they, they they were quite happy to eat local food, but a lot of Indian food was too strong and pungent to their taste. So then they adapted, they started adapting the dishes to um, suit the British palate. So they started making food milder and they started adding mm-hmm. kind of more coconut milk and cream and they started kind of um, making generic spice mixes known as curry powder. So curry powder was a British invention uh, they started borrowing kind of indiscriminately from different different regions of India and started kind of making generic curries. The, the curries lost their regionality and these were, you know, because they were adapted by Anglo-Indians. But the, the, the younger British people who came, you know, the second wave of um, uh, colonizers and their young wives, they actually rejected Indian food. Um, they were really snobby. They thought curries were really kind of vulgar and um, unsophisticated and smelly and they wanted to eat, eat French food and British food. So they used a lot of kind of imported tin products, even though that it wasn't of very good quality. Um, but they were just very, very disdainful and very rejecting of Indian, you know, like traditional Indian food. So I would say, yeah, there, there's two lots of British with different attitudes towards Indian food. And when it came to people back in Britain, um, when were they getting the first tastes of of Indian food? How did it, how did it trickle trickle down into into Britain? As early as I would say mid eighteenth century, curry powder was sold in London in London mm-hmm. department stores and uh, food shops. 
there's Hannah Glass who who wrote about uh, who wrote the first curry recipe as well. Um, so there were British cookery books which were publishing curry recipes in 18th century. So that started trickling down to home cooks, you know, home cooking. And also, you know, the British from India going back to, well, coming back to Britain and cu- cooking curries um, and bringing recipes from sometimes, you know, hastily written recipes from the servants and their cooks in India and adapting those recipes to availability of ingredients in, in, in Britain. And there were lots of um, empire exhibitions which started around sort of 19th oh, yeah. century as well. We loved an exhibition, didn't we, in the... <laughs> In the, <laughs> in the 19th century. Yeah, there were, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with kind of which turned India into mm. some kind of theme park. So Indian food started getting fashionable. And um, so, yeah, there was a cra- craze for all things Indian. And that included Indian food, Indian curries, Indian curry powder. So I would say mixture of uh, cookbooks and availability of curry powder popularized mm-hmm. Indian food in Britain. There were also army officers who had the first taste of curry in the in the army barracks you know they were served curries in, mm. in canteens so they had the first taste of indian food and they loved it yeah and there was this um sort of a gentleman's club definitely certainly had a you know a, well yeah sometimes i think 100 percent of the menu was indian well indian inspired i suppose we could call it <laughs> in the 18th century there were gentlemen's clubs who had a few curries on their menus so they would sell i think just coffee tea sandwiches and I don't know, British items, and then they would have a few curries on the menu, curries and pilau mm-hmm. rice. And the first Indian restaurant to open in, in Britain was Hindustani Curry House in 1810. So the first proper Indian restaurant was in the 19th century. Uh, but until then, there were other gentlemen's clubs which had curries on the menu. It was just a few, you know, a few curries, but these were really popular with Anglo-Indians who had come back to Britain and they'd settled around central London and city of London areas. Uh, but these gentlemen's clubs, I suppose, are, are very different to, uh, you know, what we think of today, perhaps as a modern day British curry house. Where did the, what, well, yeah, where did those sort of modern curry houses come from? How how did those suddenly start appearing? Yeah, they started appearing at the beginning of 20th century because um, the, the British started running steamships between Calcutta and east east end of London, and they employed. Bengali sailors, and this was like towards the end of 19th century. Part of the reason is because these Bengali sailors were really hardworking and they were cheap labour and they could be exploited and they weren't educated. So you could just get them to work on your steamships in really kind of horrendous circumstances, you know, with exploding boilers and, you know, no health and safety Mm. checks Mm. or anything. And unfortunately, many of them died um, between their travels between Calcutta and London. Some of them jumped ship and they settled in London, in the eastern in the east end of London, around Brick Lane, Whitechapel, Shadwell High Street, you know, these areas. There were others who settled in New York and Southampton and Singapore and Rangoon as well. It's not just they didn't just come to London. Sure. In early early 20th century, um, there was someone called Mr. Ali who owned a boarding house in East, East End of London and he set up a cafe for Bengali seamen to eat rice and curry after, you know, like a day's hard work. And some of the sailors were actually just disembarking to just get on uh, other ships which were travelling travelling to New York or travelling back to Calcutta. So not everyone had settled in 
had decided to settle in London. So some of them were just, you know, stopping by and there were others who had settled in London, but they all needed to eat. So Mr. Mr. Ali started serving rice and curry to this to the sailors. That must have been the first Bengali restaurant. Mm. But then there were other people who copied him and started setting up cafes around East of East End of London and started selling rice and curry as well for Bengali sailors. So this is how the original um, Bengali curry houses started. But they were just called Bengali because Bangladesh hadn't been formed as a country. No, indeed, of course. Um, yes. And it's, yeah, and really it was only after 1971 when lots of um, Bangladeshis came over from, from Bangladesh uh, and, the, you know, they arrived in Britain and they set up restaurants that the Bangladeshi restaurants really took off. But actually, you know, before that as well, there were lots of fish and chip shops in London which were bombed during the Second World War and they lay, lay derelict and they were turned into curry houses by early Bengali sailors. There were also North Indian students and entrepreneurs in 1950s and 1960s who set up early curry houses in, in central London in areas like Soho and also in West London, you know, where they were working in factories. So there, there were places like South Hall and Hounslow where Punjabis came and they set up Indian restaurants, Punjabi restaurants. So the early curry houses started in early 20th century, but they were catering for, uh, the, the very early ones were catering for like local Indians, local Indian communities, students and seamen. But the, the ones, the, the fish and chip shops, the converted fish and chip shops, they started catering for uh, white customers mm. who had previously used fish and chip shops. They continued serving fish and chips uh, oh. on the early menus. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and they, then they had rice and curry as an option. And basically, they just didn't want to alienate the previous customers. So then these white working class male customers started eating curry as a as a sauce to go with their fish and chips and that's how young working class men who didn't have any connection with india they started discovering curry and mm. enjoying enjoying curry and some somewhere along the line they discovered that actually you know it went really well with beer and it helped with hangovers and um <laughs> that's I mean, true it does though <laughs> Yeah, so a dish with lots of chilies, you know, re yeah, it just goes really well with beer. So curry started getting popular because of these, you know, ex-fish and chip shops. And um, yeah, so that's how early Bangladeshi and Indian restaurants were born. And they were, they, they had, the, the early ones had uh, Raj type decor of, you know, like swirly brown or red carpets and brass ornaments mm -hmm. and wicker chairs and potted palms and th this kind of decor continued until i think well into 1980s or 1990s yeah even. i remember it for sure yeah 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 and uh the, the menus were all bangladeshi or north indian adaptations of anglo-indian curries which were served in north indian restaurants in india which catered to anglo-indians at the time you know, in in nineteenth century, mm -hmm. so that's where you know all this koma and madras in Vindaloo and those kind of curries come from. Mm -hmm. And very different, I'm assuming, from what those people were eating and cooking when they were at home with their families. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mm -hmm. they would be eating Bengali or Bangladeshi food, um, depending on 
availability of ingredients here. They were cooking things from scratch. So in in their restaurants, they were using shortcuts and they were using ready-made spice blends and ready-made curry sauces. But at home, they wouldn't dream of eating like that. Home-cooked food would be less rich, uh, less oily. Hmm. They wouldn't use food colorings. They would yeah. use fresh vegetables. What is astounding to me when I was reading the book is just the, I don't know, what's the right word? Bravery, stubbornness, just good old-fashioned mm. hard graft that these these people were doing in yeah. difficult conditions. I mean, I'm assuming at mm. first they would have not certainly been fluent English speakers, so they had yeah. that barrier to get through. And then I suppose quite quickly with, either, like you say, there is that uh, a marrying of going for a curry after you've been to the pub. And, you know, they really had to put up mm. with a lot from a lot of their... Uh, racist clientele how they managed to keep yeah. any kind of composure i just don't know mm. <laughs> yeah sadly there's a story of all immigrants isn't it because um they face lots of uh, racism and bullying mm. and it's hard enough to settle in a new country and especially you know when you're dealing with culture shock there weren't many indian or bengali ingredients around in those days so i think it must have been really hard and but they kept their mind focused on making enough money to set up their own places, set up their own restaurants, where they would make enough money to retire early and give their children good education so that their children wouldn't have to put up with these conditions, these kind of working conditions. And their children were educated enough to break away from uh, this, line, this line of work. You know, they, they wanted to make sure that their, their children didn't end up in hospitality industries they put up with things so their children wouldn't have to. But yeah, it must have been really hard. And I think the their attitude, the first generation of immigrants had the attitude that you were a guest in someone's country. So you had to be polite. You had to be on their best behavior. You had to assimilate. And it wasn't your country. You were just there as a, as a foreigner. Hmm. Whereas second and third generation of Indians and Bangladeshis who, who've been brought up in this country, their attitude and their mindset is different because they regard this country as their country. They're British. They don't have the same attitude towards the country. They don't feel like they're outsiders in the same way that the parents did. Um, so I think the parents just felt like if they weren't on their best behavior, they might be kicked out. There was always a threat of um, being booted out of this country. So I think it's a, it's a mixture of like fear of having to leave and the 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 kind of the need and the focus for making money so that they could give their children decent education that kept them going and also you know asian i mean south asian cultures and i'm sure all asian cultures and actually many other cultures around the world they're, mm. they're they're very aspirational you know people want to better themselves and they want to make money and they want to have a good life they they want to give their children a good life um people are not contented being at the bottom of the of the strata you know they want to move ahead and move on and money making is not seen as something to be ashamed of <laughs> you have to be really strong to put up with that kind of behavior from racist and rude customers though and i've actually seen it with my own eyes i mean i've been in sri lankan restaurants and south indian restaurants where you know you get a group of um young men mm -hmm. uh, like you know eight eight or ten guys young young white men coming in on a friday night and demanding chicken tikka masala and the restaurant owners explaining that look this is a sri lankan restaurant we don't do chicken tikka masala which is a mm. north indian dish mm -hmm. 
or we're South Indian restaurant and we don't do chicken tikka masala. And they start banging on tables and start making a lot of noise saying, we're not going to leave until you make us chicken tikka masala. So, you know, it takes a lot of mental strength. Mm. And um, yeah. I think a kind of um, spiting your tongue kind of attitude, which is not necessarily healthy, but it's, it, it you know, it takes, a, a, I think, a different kind of mindset that I think my, my parents and grandparents' generation had um, that I think younger people don't have mm. these days. And um, why should they really, you know, why should we have to put up with that kind of behaviour? Well, though, indeed, but, you know, I mean, well done for their skills in diplomacy because I certainly wouldn't yeah. have them. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah I mean, exactly. It's, I guess it's one of those things where, well, and I guess this is perhaps different if when it's a, a, an ex-colonial world, if you're moving from a colony into, you know, the, the country of origin, there's immediately a superiority inbuilt there in the people living there and they don't even know it's there because it's mm. just the culture and you don't notice culture <laughs> when, yeah. when you're in the thick of it you only notice differences in culture i would say mm. um, yeah so we've come a lot we've come a long way there's still quite mm. a way to go <laughs> yeah that's right yeah still a long way to go yeah. but we're, we're certainly um certainly getting better yeah i think people in britain and around the world i think are starting to learn more about Indian food. And I think there's a greater awareness that there is more to Indian food than curry. Uh, there are Indian snacks and charts and street foods and South Indian dishes like dosas mm -hmm. and idlis, you know, which are becoming popular. Uh, there are lots of in, uh, lots of British people, especially during lockdown, who are making who were making Indian dishes from uh, from scratch, including things like naan and pickles. And I mean, I know one person who made puppets, you know, like pop, which are called puppetums, ah, okay. but puppets using dehydrators. So even the Indian, <laughs> a lot of the young Indian people in India don't do that anymore. You know, they don't make puppets at home. Mm. They don't make pickles at home. Yeah. So there is a real sort of commitment and interest in learning more about Indian food. And I think people are becoming just even the average British person probably now knows the difference between North Indian and South Indian. And they may not be aware of like different regions and nuances of Indian cooking. And it's not just about Madras and Koma and Vindaloo and, you know, those kind of curries anymore. There, there's, you know, more to Indian food than curry house curries. You mentioned the word authentic and put it in inverted commas. Yeah. <laughs> um, every time I say authentic now, assume there's um, commas, inverted commas around yeah. the word. It's such um, a controversial word, isn't it? It is. And it's something that I have to think about a lot if I'm doing historical stroke traditional food. And there's always a trade-off. What would you say about authenticity in, in, in Britain and Indian food? Are we getting more authentic uh, and uh, would you say the Anglo-Indian and the Indian are, are diverging? I wouldn't use the word authentic just okay. because I don't like it and I think it's really mm. problematic. Yeah. Um, I would use the word traditional and even though it's it's still problematic. It's less so, I think. Mm. So I think what's happening now is that the the old school Anglo-Indian and British curries like Koma and Madras, they're kind of being phased out. And even old school curry houses only put them in a section, in one section of the menus. And we're finding now more and more regional curries and regional dishes, especially I think modern Indian chefs are really pioneering in this respect. You know, that um, I mean, they have the money, you know, they have the money to travel around India and they money to research dishes and high-end restaurants have money to employ cooks from India. Um, so you get an idea of what Indian families cook in those regions of India. So I think yeah, there is more of that. And I think Anglo-Indian and British is gradually 
they're, they're being phased out. But there'll always be a market for them because, you know, there are still sort of um, people who enjoy those dishes. They like the, the standardization. They like the predictability of those kind of old school curry house curries. Mm-hmm. I can I can understand why people do that. I mean, when, when my parents go to Middle East restaurants or Italian restaurants, they stick to dishes that they've ordered before and they, they don't want to try anything new. Whereas I'm different, you know, I'm, I always kind of go for the most unusual or the unfamiliar dishes. Well, um, well, we're running out of time a little bit now. We've been we've been talking a while. Oh, one thing that I've seen uh, on Twitter a lot was your trip along the Elizabeth, the New Elizabeth Line, finding all the Indian restaurants and and cafes and all sorts of different food establishments, not just restaurants. That looked like it was a good fun thing to do. Yeah, that was great fun. Um, yeah, because it started with the tw- uh, with the tweet with me saying that the new Elizabeth line is tailor-made for Indian restaurants because you have the Bangladeshi and Pakistani um, families living in East End of London and you have Punjabis and actually Gujaratis as well in in West London and South Indians living in West London as well. Mm -hmm. So if you do a restaurant crawl from one end of uh, Elizabeth line to another, then (laughs) you basically, you, you get a good snapshot of Indian food in in London, including central London, which is high-end restaurants or contemporary restaurants. So those are kind of pan-Indian restaurants where you get a taste of original Indian dishes. So I thought, yeah, um, I mean, I you know, I just kind of put that on Twitter and a couple of editors approached me and said, do you want to write about this for, for us? So I've written one piece already for the Good Food Guide, which has been published. Oh. And there's another one coming up for the Financial Times Globetrotter, which is a new travel section. So that's coming up maybe either later on this month or next month. I'm not sure yet. And um, I discovered that there's a curry called Salan, which is Hyderabadi curry. And it's become very popular. It never used to be, you know, like three, four years ago before lockdown. Mm. It, it didn't, it, I hardly ever saw it on the restaurant menus, apart from Hyderabadi restaurant menus. But now it's suddenly everywhere. Well, um, I guess it's time to um, to wrap up. Thank yeah. you very much for sparing the time to come on the podcast because you are a busy bee, that's for sure. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's, it's been a good chance to talk about Indian food and Indian food history, and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you, Sajal. There were so many things I didn't get to talk about with her. I hope she'll come back on. Now, I have left links to her book, The Philosophy of Curry, as well as a couple of her articles, including the one about her Indian food crawl on the New Elizabeth Line in the show notes plus her social media handles, because if you don't already follow her, she is well worth following. So check them out, please. Also in the show notes is a link to my book, which I don't think I've ever mentioned. It's called A Dark History of Sugar. It's out now, published by Pen and Sword. Oh yes, as I was saying right at the start of the episode, I mean, I know I say this every episode, but please contact me with comments, queries, etc. because there is going to be a postbag episode. And it can be about anything from not just this season, but any previous season. Or you might have questions about the sugar book, or you might have just seen some interesting food history in the news. It's going to be in two episodes time. So do write in. So contact details again. Email neil at britishfoodhistory.com Twitter at Neil Buttery and Instagram at Dr. Dr. Underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Okay, Easter eggs. There are three associated with this episode. 
One is our full chat about Indian food today and, well, traditional stroke authentic food. There's another about some of the ancient Indian texts and accounts of Indian food. And one is my theory about why black pepper has won over long pepper, which is a much nicer spice in my most humble of opinions. If you want to support the podcast and blogs, you already are because you're listening to it. But to support just that little bit more, please review, like and tell as many folk about it as you can. As long as it's nice stuff, of course. You could also become a subscriber. Subscribers get access to all the Easter eggs on my Easter eggs page of the website, plus loads of other extra bits. These include delete scenes, uncut interviews, extra mini-season, and extra blog posts. If you want to start a subscription, go to the Support the Blog and Podcast tab on the website, britishviewhistory.com. A subscription is just £3 a month, and everything I receive will go back into making more content. Alternatively, you could treat me to a one-off virtual coffee or virtual pint. Okay, off I go. Cheerio. Please take care of yourselves, and I shall see you next time.